Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, please reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. Also, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. I really appreciate it. It gets us a lot of exposure and I love to hear from you guys and how you're experiencing the podcast. So please do that. And for all of you that have done that, thank you very much. Also, don't forget, you can join our Facebook group. Just go to facebook.com and type in the Addicted Mind podcast. All right, we are on to episode number 69. And our guest today is Cynthia Schmidt. And she is going to share a little bit of her own recovery from heroin addiction and also about her personal experience working in the addiction treatment field, dealing specifically around medication-assisted treatment. I was really happy to have Cynthia on the podcast. It was great talking with her, and I could really connect to her passion in helping individuals who are struggling with addiction. And she really had a strong passion for wanting to inform anyone who's struggling about all their different options in the treatment addiction field, especially around using medications as an option to help with the recovery process as a road to get into recovery. And so I appreciated our conversation. I hope you will as well. And let's go ahead and start this episode. All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Cynthia Smith, and she is going to talk about the physiology of addiction and medication-assisted treatment. Cynthia, you want to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. So, I am Cynthia. I started this journey, I think, about a little over 23 years ago. Well, really before that, 
I uh, grew up in a very like middle class suburb, little college town on the east side of LA County. So it was my trek from there probably was unusual given my background. But I, when I was 21, I moved to Hollywood to live with a friend of mine. And we spent a lot of time on Sunset Boulevard in the clubs. And I kind of like to blame that whole era on Kurt Cobain and grunge. But, <laughs> you know, they're, right. Right. I actually, all through high school, I drank. I kind of was like, portrait of a teenage alcoholic, but didn't touch any drugs. I'm the youngest of six and I had seen my brothers and sisters do, you know, when they were under the influence and kind of veered away from that. But when I was 20, it was the first time I tried any drugs. I graduated very quickly from like marijuana and mushrooms at 20 to heroin at 21. Right, so it moved really fast. I always kind of, because I was uh, so much younger than my siblings, I always sort of jumped ahead (laughs) of everybody when I took something on. And so I just sort of had a fast and furious few years and ended up in treatment at 25. I actually spent my 25th birthday in detox. So I... I'm fond of telling people I basically tried everything except PCP and LSD, and that is just because nobody put it in my hand because I would have put it in my mouth. Right, <laughs> I was kind of one of those addicts that you'd put something in my hand, I'd pop it in my mouth, and then say, what was that? <laughs> so, right. The fast and furious, <laughs> yes, right? very much. So at 22, I ended up at a six-month residential program, and courtesy of uh, L.A. County, it was one of the county-funded programs. And so I have, that's my background is, you know, identifying, I guess, as sort of a heroin addict. I've gone through the experience of opioid withdrawal many times. The last year I was using, I was actually trying very hard to quit. I detoxed myself at home about five times and then finally went back into detox detox. Can you can you talk a little bit about because I think a lot of people who aren't addicted don't understand the addict's desire to quit often. You know, they often have that desire. They're trying. Yeah. And that is so that's really important. You know, we'll get into the medication, but New Jersey recently passed a law that they are going to be allowing paramedics to carry buprenorphine so that when they bring somebody out of an overdose using naloxone, they can offer it to the patient. Drugs are active in the reward circuitry of the brain, which really what the reward circuitry is, is our survival instincts. Our brain rewards us with some good feeling neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, When we do something that is going to promote our survival, so it's why food is so appealing, it's why sex is so appealing, because if it wasn't, we would have died off very quickly. Right, yep. And so these, these things that either help us survive as individuals or as a species, the way that our midbrain, that primal primitive oldest part of our brain under the cortex 
helps us survive is it teaches, it rewards us when we engage in these behaviors, which teaches us, oh, if I do this, this is what I get to feel. For whatever reason, that's where drugs operate. And so in a way, that very primal, unconscious part of our brain kind of develops this you might say a belief that if I stop drinking and using, I'm going to die because it's in that part of the brain where we learn that I need to keep engaging in these behaviors or some, you know, I'm going to perish. And so what happens is we start to pay consequences as we sort of dive whole hog into our addiction. And these consequences start to build up And that unconscious part of the brain will start to get this other notion that if I continue doing this, I'm going to die. And those, sometimes they're awarenesses, mostly they're unconscious, they kind of do battle. So when, especially when we pay a consequence, like say somebody overdoses, that's a very serious consequence. This sort of window of opportunity tends to open where it's in our face. We cannot deny that what I'm doing is insane. I'm going to kill myself doing this. And oftentimes when we're facing that consequence, we become willing to change, to do something different. The trick with addiction is capturing that moment and acting on it. Because it is so easy to wait 45 minutes and be on to something else and forget that we just put ourselves through this pain. So like the idea, one of the ideas with having the buprenorphine on board with the ambulances is that consequence if somebody overdoses, that there here's this opportunity when that window opens a little bit um, that they may be willing to try treatment. So one very quick way to introduce somebody to the idea of treatment is buprenorphine. And so if while they're in the withdrawals, you know, they're in the withdrawal, they're feeling beyond uncomfortable, they're in pain, they feel like they want to come out of their skin, they are offered something that is both going to provide comfort But also because of the way buprenorphine works, it has a blockade effect because it's it's very sticky in that receptor site, the mu opioid receptor site. It has what is called a high affinity, which basically means it's drawn to that receptor site. And it's very long acting. So once they take the buprenorphine, they have about 24 hours where even if they try to use other opioids, they're not going to feel the effect. So it, it kind of will extend that window, open window period and introduce them to what it could feel like if they stopped what they were doing and started on this other path. And buprenorphine does work very quickly. There's pros and cons, you know, because of that. But yeah, we spend a lot of time wanting something different, but we don't know what to do. Right. So you have this kind of, it sounds like what you're saying, you have this warring brain, you have this very primitive part of the brain that is, I guess it's where that that, kind of gets hijacked and the frontal cortex, our thinking part of our brain is 
they're battling it out always with this addiction. And then this, someone reaches that opportunity, that, that moment of, I guess sometimes people call it a moment of clarity. Right. It's exactly. And you can like go, hey, here is this drug that will help extend that window and maybe get you more help. Right. At least your willingness to consider. I mean, if you think about like Prochaska and DiClemente stages of change, you could pull somebody sort of from pre-contemplation to contemplation during that period while they take the buprenorphine and you're going to sort of knock them into contemplation for an extended period of time, even if it's just the day. That can be what turns some, one day can turn somebody's life around. I'm hoping they will not just carry the medication, but also referrals to programs, to physicians. And I hopefully will have time to talk about that a little bit, programs or physicians. Not all programs, especially on the West Coast, are amenable to folks taking replacement therapies, quote unquote, like buprenorphine or methadone. So... Unfortunately, one of, and this is why I, why I do this, why I t- want to talk about medication-assisted treatment all the time. If I could find a path, I mean, I used to work for the pharmaceutical companies that make both Suboxone and then Vivitrol. I spent four years at each of those. If I could find a, like a, say, a public service job, which would be preferable, where I could go out and just talk about this all day, every day. It's because I think that a lot of folks have that knee-jerk reaction to these medications. I can remember when I was in treatment, folks saying things like, you don't treat drug addiction with drugs. Things that made sense at the time until I, my brain sort of grew and expanded and I learned that not all drugs are equal, not all drugs are bad. There's a difference between dependence and addiction. That's one thing that I kind of marvel at is how even folks in this field, counselors, therapists, even physicians will use those words interchangeably. Dependence and addiction. They'll say addiction when what they really mean is dependence. And it's just, it's really important for people to remember that addiction is continued use despite negative consequences. If I have a prescription that I'm picking up and it is keeping my cravings at bay so that I'm no longer using heroin, I'm back in school or back at work and starting to piece my life back together. I'm not addicted to that because it's not causing negative consequences. In fact, it's causing positive consequences. But a lot of folks, they get very hung up on the idea of having to take something every day. Maybe it's because I grew up, my dad was a cardiac patient. He took a shoebox full of medications every week. So maybe it's just a different perspective that I don't have that innate judgment or resistance to some people have to take medication. My grandfather was a diabetic. My mom gave him insulin injections every day. Right. I think that also this is changing as we understand the brain more and we're doing more research around addiction. We're realizing that some of these medications can be extremely supportive of somebody who's 
struggling with some of these addictions. I mean, it can really be helpful. Especially with opioid dependence. Opioid dependence has one of the highest relapse rates. We're talking about something that fits so perfectly in our brain. Our brain knows exactly what to do with it. There's evidence even that if you were to take a pure opioid, something that didn't have, you weren't buying off the street that was filled with God knows what. (laughs) And I've heard a laundry list of horrifying things that street drugs get cut with. And even not the fillers of, there are folks who in other cultures who smoke opium their entire lives into their 90s. And aside from the fact that you have to continue doing it or you'll feel withdrawal, it does not harm the body in some of the ways that more toxic substances like, say, alcohol (laughs) or even methamphetamine, tobacco, cocaine. Um, People can actually function with an opioid dependence because our brains know what to do with it. We make our own opioids. Endorphins are endogenous opioids that it's our body's own morphine, they call it. So these exogenous opioids that we find in nature or that we have learned to synthesize, they just fit exactly into that mu receptor and and our brain knows exactly what to do with it. So because of that, I think, our brain, once we have started using opioids, because of homeostasis, very quickly our brain chemistry responds by it will pull back on production of endorphins and because it's getting these outside opioids. We, we constantly have some endorphins, some kind of opioid, whether it's our own, you know, usually it's our own, active in our brain to some degree. If, if that weren't so, it would hurt to wear clothes and sit and touch things. And so we need a little bit of, a, of those chemicals. And we get so acclimated, our brain gets so acclimated so quickly, and we build a tolerance so quickly to these that it is a real challenge to stop using them. You know, there are theories out there also, we don't, you know, the brain is like sort of the last frontier. I mean, we know so little about the brain. It's so complex and so complicated. And we can't exactly, you know, cut it open and look at it when in in action action, you know we have we have scans that we can use and you know other things that we can use but it's not like a broken bone or you know something that you can see and it is I mean if you compare it to a computer it's like so much more complex than like any pc you could have it's Right. Yeah. We we're yeah. It's we are on the the cutting edge of of understanding how the the brain and the mind works and how it all works together and everything like that. So what I hear you kind of saying and um, is that we introduce these artificial opioids into our body, our brain kind of adapts to that, and there's a new homeostasis that's created, and then we we need to continue that to kind of keep that homeostasis going. Yes. And that's where addiction comes in when we have to get these drugs. We have to do things to get them and we have consequences and we're not showing up and 
and all the consequences of addiction. And then our life gets more and more unmanageable. And then our body needs it in a way for survival, to survive. Right. And with opioids in particular, because withdrawal is so painful, you stop using it to get high. And a lot of people end up just using to feel okay. Right. Feel normal. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah and it's people with decades of opioid dependence under their belt can get to the point where they can't get high anymore. They're just using it to feel normal. But there, uh, so there are some, some that theorize that perhaps there are some of us who either that our endorphin system is inefficient in some way. We don't produce enough. We don't have enough receptor sites. It doesn't stay in the synapse long enough. So, you know, the reuptake's too quick. Whatever it is, there may be some of us who are drawn to these opioids because of, you know, a deficiency. Similar to why folks take the SSRIs and SSNRIs, right. and so and so the brain's more primed for that addiction. If your if your system already isn't kind of making enough, and you're kind of living in a state of I don't want to call it depression, but just but it uh, is. It's at least uh, and you experience this opioid. All of a sudden, it's like wow, this is amazing. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of people that kind of feel like. They were living be- below the baseline right. before they found opioids. And they'll talk about it felt like coming home. And I know it's not just opioids. Like folk, a lot of folks talk yeah. about that. With it kind of whatever opioid. fits your, exactly. your brain's uh, workings. That's what it seems to be. Like yeah. Some people, some people prefer here. stimulants. Some people prefer opioids. Some right. people really love alcohol. I just wanted to say, so... Uh, I could explain a little bit more like how I got here. Once I did get sober, I went back to school and I became an alcohol and drug counselor. I went to a two-year program for that. I was able to finish my bachelor's degree and I went through a six-month absence-only 12-step model program. I did do a methadone detox one time, a 28-day the only reason, and I was one of the few people I know who completed it and did right. stay clean for a short period of time, mostly because I didn't have any transportation. <laughs> Otherwise, I probably would have found a way to go out and use again. But I had taken methadone, but um, I had never been on maintenance. But once I finished my bachelor's in uh, behavioral science, I ended up getting married and moving to the East Coast because my husband was going to grad school and he was an artist. So we were up in Connecticut. And of course, where do you go when you're an artist? When you graduate, we went to New York, to Brooklyn. And I was lucky enough to get into Columbia to do my master's in social work. And I was working in mental health. And about a week after I started school, I decided, because I, for the two years I was in Connecticut, I actually worked at a group home with adults with severe and persistent mental, like psychotic disorders, schizophrenia, bipolar. But I decided I wanted to go back into addiction treatment. And so uh, they encourage you to do things like uh, look for volunteer, (laughs) like you're not busy enough. (laughs) You're living in New York City and you're going to grad school, but look for volunteer opportunities to sort of expand your horizons. And I happened to look at the newsletter, the Columbia newsletter, and they had 
the year before opened the buprenorphine program. It was one of the first suboxone programs, suboxone clinics in the country. This is 2004 that I started my degree. And so January 2005, I began volunteering at the buprenorphine program. I remember somebody sharing at a meeting one time about a rogue doctor up in San Fernando Valley who I think was prescribing buprenex or something before Suboxone was launched to help people. And I, and I wanted to know more about it. And so I was there for two years. I volunteered as a sort of as a counselor. Then I worked there as a therapist part-time and eventually as a program manager. So that was how I got to medication-assisted treatment. I thought that was important too. And, and it was at a time where, you know, because I was in school, I was very open-minded, very much about looking at evidence, really investigating, sort of setting aside my biases and being open to the possibility that there were other things out there that may be better than what I knew. And so it struck me, we would actually do the induction. We'd have folks come in the first day just for an evaluation and the second day to start the medication. They would come in in withdrawal. They would come in in their pajamas, in florid withdrawal. We would do a clinical opiate withdrawal scale. And once they were in severe enough withdrawal, we would start them on the medication and they would stay there all day. And so folks who are coming in in forward withdrawal, they're not the sexiest folks in the world. They're not looking their best. A week later, they would come in for their follow-up, and it was like months had passed. They were functioning. They felt good. They felt clear. These are their words. They could think straight for the first time in a long time. And... I was amazed, but I also recognized that this was problematic because there's no miracle cure for any, (laughs) pretty much any mental health problem. Even no medication is a miracle drug. And what I recognized was that because the medication works so well, these folks did not necessarily have the sort of desperation that those of us who sort of came up through the abstinence-based models had that motivated us to do more inside work. And the opportunities to do that inside work were limited to them because, like I said, a lot of programs, they don't accept folks who are on medication, medication-assisted treatment. This is one of my frustrations is that I hear a lot of complaints from folks who are psychosocial providers about this model that's developed, this office-based. You go into a doctor, get the medication. There's no counseling. There's no therapy. But you know why there isn't any counseling or therapy? Because there's no counselors or therapists. I mean, this is not true anymore, too. But at this time, 2005, 2006, There were so few counselors or therapists willing to work with these patients, and they didn't have anywhere to go for the psychosocial treatment. It was like, you either can take the buprenorphine or you can come to treatment, but you can't do both. And so what I really wish for is that those of us who are the psychosocial providers, those of us who educate, you know, folks about their addiction 
who are here to provide them the tools for long-term success, if we shed our biases and are resistant to the medication and accept that this is where this patient is at this time, there you take the medication and that this patient feels it, it is helping them. Let me go ahead and do my job regardless of that. Our patients would be so much better off that we are sort of the contributing to the, the chasm between treatment and getting your medication from, from your physician. Right. And I think that's, that's, that's changing, which is really good. I mean, yes, and definitely. that people are getting, that these are options for people to use. And if it works for them, that they can, that can be facilitated for them. I think, I think um, the addiction treatment community is becoming much more open to this uh, medically assisted treatment model. And they're being forced to in some cases, like, right. uh, you know, two years ago in California, for example, was the drug medical expansion where no longer are the sort of the public treatment places are, you know, not being financed by these big block grants, but Medi-Cal is now paying for treatment. And Medi-Cal, because it's medicine-based, it's medically-based, has really changed that branch of treatment. Physician has to sign off on everything. So I ended up sort of being poached from the buprenorphine program to work for, it was Reckitt Benkeiser at the time, and Suboxone for four years. And then I went to work for Alchemy's representing Vivitrol for four years. And after I left that, I actually part-time worked for the company actually that uh, owned the program that I'd gone through. We're, we're all very, we're very loyal alumni to, to the treatment. Pro, it's those programs, you know, especially the ones where we used, you know, we used to get to stay for six months before me, a few years before I was there, folks were staying nine, 12 months. Uh, we develop a real connection with those programs. So I was working part-time for them they had a contract to, they were one of two providers that were going through the state and doing these six-hour CEU programs for Medi-Cal providers because now if you are a Medi-Cal provider, if you're accepting financing from Medi-Cal, if you're getting reimbursement, you can't deny a patient entry into your program just because they're on buprenorphine or methadone or vivitrol, naltrexone, any of these medications. And um, although we have come a long way, I did find that there still was, especially in that sector, a lot of resistance. There still is a lot of resistance to methadone. Methadone is the most studied opioid dependence treatment on the planet. There's no other form of treatment, not psychosocial treatment, not medicinal treatment that has been studied more than methadone. Methadone has been studied and studied and studied and studied. And it, I kind of marvel at it because in some ways it's like we have to keep proving it works because the industry in which it fits continues to resist it. Right. <laughs> and that what I found when I was doing some of the research for this to facilitate this CEU course 
was really if somebody is on a high enough dose that their cravings are, you know, abated and they are involved in the program long enough, they say at least a year, the success rate with methadone is pretty good. I mean, much better than any abstinence-based program that I've seen. And they also are fairly successful in tapering people off of methadone because they take their time. And, you know, I remember sort of being of the mindset that, oh, they're just trying to keep them there. It's a cash cow. They want them to keep coming back. But really what I learned when I was at the buprenorphine program is with these medications, especially these ones that are longer acting, it takes a long time. It's just like uh, taking somebody off of benzodiazepines. I mean, I've talked to psychiatrists who it's taken nine or 12 months to get somebody off of you know, their clonopin or Valium safely. That if you really want to succeed, you have to do it slowly. And I think that's one of the big problems too about <laughs> this topic is because there are so many intricacies of like what works, what doesn't work. And you'll hear a lot of folks say, oh, Suboxone is awful. Like it's worse than methadone. It, you can't get off of it. Detox is worse than methadone even. It's horrible. It takes forever. And yeah, if you take two weeks to get off of it. So what I what I hear you saying is that if it, some of these drugs, when used, I guess what you're saying is kind of correctly or with the, with the right time frame and the right expectations, they really do help individuals overcome their addiction. That's what I'm hearing. They do. They really do. They they can be a pathway to abstinence. And if we sort of would get out of our own ways, we could use them that way. It takes it the protocol for coming off of your methadone when you get to a certain amount, like I think once you're down to like 80, 40 milligrams, somewhere in there, it's a six-month protocol. Buprenorphine is longer acting than methadone. It should take you at least six months to come off of your buprenorphine. But it's not just the patients who are, you know, sort of self-willing their way through the withdrawal. Physicians also don't fully understand this. There's a lot of six of one, half a dozen of the other when it comes to the way that buprenorphine was rolled out, that it's office-based in a physician's office. So you have a lot of doctors who are not addiction experts. They certainly are not neurobiologists. They're not even psychiatrists. And they don't understand the medications that they're prescribing fully. I mean, I've even seen this with general practitioners, yeah, with general practitioners and uh, antidepressants. You know, I had a friend who was on Lexapro and she wanted to try a new medication that came out. Her doctor stopped her Lexapro and she was going through these terrible withdrawal symptoms. And I know somebody who came off of their Zoloft and their doctor took like six months to take them off of their Zoloft. Like right. you don't just stop these medications. They're, they're working in the brain. It's so some of these medications, what you're, what I hear you saying is that they, they have to be used appropriately 
that there's, I guess there needs to be more education about them and that some people who are using them make sure that they're at a trained facility that understands how these medications work and the, and the time that it takes to, to use them. But if they're used correctly, they show a lot of uh, promise. They show a lot of ability to help people yes. overcome their addiction. And my frustration is that because they it wasn't say, launched that way, rolled out that way. The drug company, there's no information from the drug company on how to titrate off the medication. Pharmaceutical companies don't want you to titrate off their medication, bottom line. It's not their responsibility to tell you how to get off of it. It's their responsibility to tell you what it does and how to use it. But it's just sort of the nature, this is what happens, you know, when we live in a market economy, their motivation, although I found the record when I worked for them to be very patient focused, still like they're not healthcare professionals. So nobody has sort of taken the bull by the horns and said, okay, this is how to take, get off of the medication in the most comfortable way. And there are a lot of uh, physicians out there who have sort of bought the idea that this put folks on the medication and they'll just stay on the medication the rest of their life. Now that's going to be true for a lot of folks, especially somebody who has co-occurring chronic pain. They may stay on buprenorphine, methadone for the rest of their life because they have to treat their pain somehow and they can't use full agonist opioids without... So there's a lot of different... Uh, it sounds like we really have to focus on each person, their care, what that looks like, and really understand how these drugs work. But what I hear you saying, if, if they're done properly, they work well. They, they help people. Yes, absolutely. And you have to remember, this is a chronic disease for the most part. And so... And chronic relapsing. So buprenorphine, Vivitrol, methadone, whatever medication somebody is on or whatever medication is offered, it's not, you know, one size fits all. It's not even a one size fits all for that patient. They may, the first time they're in treatment, maybe it will be abstinence-based. But if they continue to relapse, maybe the next treatment episode, try Vivitrol. It's an antagonist. Right. It's not a replacement therapy. And if that, you know, they continue to relapse, then try buprenorphine. But somebody could relapse several times to many, many times across their lifetime. And at every point that they attempt to stop, you know, a different treatment may be needed at that point than what they've used previously. So it is about individualized. And I know that's really hard to do. We don't even have sort of basic standard of care in this industry. Like we don't even have a an agreed upon universal cookie cutter treatment. And I'm saying that we have to go beyond that and look at individualized care, but that is the way we will be most successful is if my, my wish is that every provider be willing to educate patients about all of the options available to them and then help them decide what would be the most appropriate 
path to take at this point, whether that's medication or not, and that we just be at least willing to give the patients the information. And in order to do that, we have to make sure we're educated ourselves about it. Yes, definitely. So, Cynthia, anybody out there who's struggling at this moment, maybe listening to the podcast or they know someone who's struggling, what would you want to what would you want to say to them? I would want to say there's hope that you know, if you've tried one of these medications and you didn't succeed, it doesn't mean that the medication didn't work for you. You have to build framework around this treatment. You can't just take a pill, the film, an injection, and everything's going to be okay. There's two parts of the brain that are affected here, and the medications are going to help that unconscious part, will help reduce the cravings. But, and that's where our urges and drives are. That's the engine. The thing that's driving you to continue to use is that primal part of the brain that you can't talk to. It's, it's un, an unconscious part. But we have, in addition to that engine, our braking system is that cortex and prefrontal cortex where we make these decisions and judgments. And that is going to require psychosocial treatment. So be open to trying whatever it takes. Be open to, you know, don't be afraid of having to look at the sort of the um, consequences that have occurred because of your addiction, the wreckage of your life. As long as you keep an open mind and advocate for yourself, if you're in a treatment facility and you don't feel like you are getting what you need, advocate for yourself and try and find out as much as you can about the treatments that are out there and available. There are no shortcuts, though. You can't just go to the doctor and take a pill and everything's going to be peachy keen. We, especially for those of us who, you know, had any number of years that we were in our addiction and have paid a lot of consequences and have a lot of wreckage, like we've traumatized ourselves in a lot of ways or been traumatized and that may have led, a, led us to, you know, using in the first place. But be open-minded, but willing to do whatever it takes. Don't count any treatment out whole hog. It may be, you may have heard from somebody that methadone is the devil or suboxone is terrible. But until you have seen a, an experienced educated provider who can use that tool appropriately, you're not really giving it a fair shot. And that there are more tools in our toolbox now than any other time before. I mean, certainly there are so many more tools than I had 23 years ago to help me to get sober and to introduce me to recovery. And even if you have to pull every tool out of the toolbox by the end of it, keep working at it. You can recover. We all can. Any one of us, I have talked to people who've been through 30 treatment episodes before they obtained any length of time in recovery. But once you do, life is so worth it. And one of the 
phrases that gets thrown around uh, 12-step community. Your life can turn out to be beyond your wildest dreams, but you have to be willing to sort of give up control and let folks who know better than you help you through that process. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Cynthia, for coming on and, and sharing your, your wisdom. If people want more information about you or about any of these issues, where can they go? You can email me directly. Cynthia, C-Y-N-T-H-I-A dot Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-T, no D, no extra T, at gmail.com. You can email me directly. I will answer any questions that you have. I also uh, belong to some uh, medication-assisted treatment groups on Facebook. Some of them are very good sources for information. Some are not, but but there are certainly some that have people who are very caring and huge advocates for folks. You know, addiction is hard enough, but opioid dependence is just ravaging folks and does not discriminate. It doesn't matter if you live on a farm in Vermont or in along the Appalachian Trail or downtown Los Angeles. Opioids are available everywhere and there are crazy things coming into this country. I'm thank God I got clean before fentanyl hit this nation. It is scary out there. And opioid dependence is one of those things that it only takes one time and you're done. It's where there is life, there is hope. But, you know, with opiates, it can snuff your life out just one time that you use a little too much or, you know, some buy it from somebody you don't know, et cetera. And, 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 um, your, wor- and your worth yes. here and your worth recovery. Absolutely. So go, Every yeah. single one of us Do anything has something to offer. Yeah. Uh, we just, and it's not your fault if uh, you've become opioid dependent if you become an, if you become addicted it's a long road getting there so most of us start out the same way our friends started out yeah it's just that we had that predisposition that took us down a different path so get help we got to wrap up so thank you so much for coming on and uh, just appreciate you being here Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you letting me share some of my uh, information. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. You can find all the show notes for this episode at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 69. Once again, if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. I really appreciate it. That really does help get us a lot of exposure. And don't forget, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and uh, we should come up there and just click join. Once again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. 
We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.